Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Stephen Snape for a conversation about a fortress in the Mediterranean Basin that existed during the Bronze Age called the Fortress of Zoyet Um El Rakam. And Dr. Snape joins the show today because he has been doing uh, excavations on this site and he joins the show to speak more about what this fortress was built for, used for, and some of the other geopolitical uh, uh, aspects that would have been occurring during this time when this uh, fortress was in use. Dr. Snape is Honorary Fellow, Archaeology Classics and Egyptology at the University of Liverpool, based in the UK, and he joins us from the UK today. Welcome to the call, Stephen. Hi, Andrew. Good to be here. All right. So, what was the fortress of Zoyet Um El Rakam? What was it? Um, well, let me give you a bit of background. Uh, Egypt's relationship with its neighbours to the west was... Um, it's, it's an area which has um, not received as much attention to its relationship with the area to the south, Nubia, the Sudan, or its its relationship with people over to the east. And that's because the people who lived there, who we can generally refer to as Libyans, uh, were, were mainly nomads. They were nomadic groups that they had herds of sheep and goat. They travelled around the desert from oasis to oasis, occasionally interacting with Egyptians on the fringe uh, of the Nile Valley and the Delta. But most of the time, the Egyptians weren't interested with them and they didn't give the Egyptians any trouble. But this all changed, and it changed in the period from, from about 1350 to 1300 BCE, when we see um, the emergence of new Libyan groups. When I say we, I mean most of our sources, almost all of our sources are Egyptians. But the Egyptians start talking about these new Libyans called Meshwesh and Libu. Libu is the term that we eventually get the name Libya from. And uh, these people seem to be um, technologically and politically um, much more organised than the the nomads. And uh, they start putting pressure on Egypt. And what this will eventually do is, is result in the period after after the fortress, because the fortress is is essentially during the reign of Ramesses II. After the reign of Ramesses II, uh, these people actually start invading Egypt, trying to invade Egypt in huge numbers. So what we seem to have happening a little bit before that, reign of Ramesses II, so we're talking roughly about 1290, 1213 BCE, is that the Egyptians take account of these Libyan invaders these, these attempted Libyan invaders, and they either build new fortifications around existing towns on the western edge of the Nile Delta, or, as in the case of Zeratum or Rakam, they start building new forts, new fortress towns, along the Mediterranean coast, heading westwards towards what we think of as Libya itself, as an early warning and, uh, and a defence system against these incoming Libyans, both who are... Well, there are two things going on. First of all, the Egyptians are worried about these people trying to 
getting into Egypt itself, but also they're interested in protecting that bit of the coast, which is an important part of the, the great Mediterranean trading cycle, which is very obvious in, in the late Bronze Age. And Egypt has an important role to play in that. And this is a place where ships mm. seems to be, seem to be landing as they make their way to Egypt from, from, from southern Crete, for instance. And so the Egyptians have an interest in protecting this coast from, from these new Libyans who are coming in. So essentially, that's the, 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 the general geopolitical background that sees the creation of, of these forts. And the Mesoitum or Rakan one is probably the one that's furthest to the west. And it's certainly the only one that we really know about in detail because we've been excavating there for, for some time now. Okay, and we'll get uh, certainly into some specifics about uh, what's known of the specific site where you've been spending a lot of your um, time. Um, before we get there, uh, and your answers uh, painted a, a good picture of some of the uh, geopolitical considerations that were occurring at that point in time. Um, can you speak about uh, e so Egypt? So where so on a on a map using um, uh, like present day country terminology for the for the sake of uh, ease in in locating it visually on a map. Uh, what uh, what country would this um, uh, fortress fall inside of? Okay, it's it's um, well, it's today within the modern state of Egypt. It's on Egypt. It's on the Mediterranean coast. Um, it's it's a long way west of the of the of the, of the Nile Delta. It's about two hundred and eighty mm -hmm. kilometers, mm -hmm. and near the modern city of Mersa which is a large, the last large town or city before you get to to Libya itself. So, I mean, you, you raise an interesting question about about ancient uh, countries and modern countries. I mean, as far as the Egyptians were concerned. Egypt was essentially the Nile Valley and the Nile Delta. They had very little interest in the deserts, apart from places as for, for, for mining activities, for instance, um, quarrying. The area to the west, of course, there are a number of oases in the desert, which are, can sustain relatively low level occupation. But most of that area, which today is fully within the modern state of, uh, of Egypt, would have been of very little interest to the Egyptians. And that's why, although as I said, that most of are true on the Mediterranean coast is a is a is a sizable modern Egyptian city. In ancient terms, that would be way way west of, of anything that the ancient Egyptians considered as, as as vaguely anything like home. Okay, so uh, you described a little bit of uh, where Egypt considered their holdings to be. You mentioned the Nile, uh, the, the the Nile uh, Valley as an example. Um, so can you describe, but, but this, this fortress isn't, isn't there. It's not, it's not at the Nile. So can, so, and you mentioned other fortresses that were, were, were built. So can you, can you describe, um, what, what scholars would believe, uh, Egypt, Egypt's land would be demarcated to it, its holdings in that respect, uh, in the, uh, Met, Medi Mediterranean by this point in time. And what I'm, Without trying to do a leading question, but I but I want to bring into that uh, uh, if if Egypt considered themselves to have holdings in the in the Levant region by that point in time as well. So I want to kind of you know just understand that better from a demarcation perspective. Okay, that's that, that, 
That's an interesting question. There are a number of aspects to it. I think the first thing to say is that um, ancient empires, particularly in the in the Near East, don't really have strong borders in the way that we understand them. You know, if we look at an atlas, we see straight lines or wiggly lines on maps, and um, on the on the ground, on one side of them mm-hmm. is one country, and then you do a few steps in another direction. If you don't go through a wall or a fence, or yeah, and you need your pa- and you need your passport, side, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And on the other side, you're in another country, and um, but but what we're looking at here is is something which is much more fuzzy. It's more like a more like a frontier than a than a border. So it's a fuzzy area, and the the definitions of that fuzzy area is how much any particular state can control. So from Egypt's point of view, uh, the core state of Egypt is the Nile Valley as far south as the modern city of Aswan, all of the the Nile Valley, and it's all of the Delta. Now, beyond that, it gets a bit more fuzzy. So one of Egypt's main interests is how far south they can go. So uh, in the New New King, in the Late Bronze Age, Egypt pushes its, uh, its, its frontiers further and further south. So they head off up the Nile and essentially the Egyptian army is so successful that it conquers territory as far south as it likes. And so it's well into what we consider today to be the modern state of Sudan before they stop. And the reason that they stop is not because they come across any, you know, any um, major competitor because they've they've got rid of any major competitor. There's, there's this big state called Kush um, in northern Sudan, southern Egypt, and the Egyptians essentially obliterate it. And they take control of it. And the, re- the, the place that they stop is where they think, well, we don't really want to extend our control any further south because it doesn't really interest us. There's, there's no good agricultural land. There's no really interesting interesting uh, mineral resources. So they just stop. So that's a that's a good example of the Egyptians extending their power, their frontier, as far south as, as they like. And what they do is the Egyptian king puts up a big stealer or he carves something on a big mountain and says, you know, this is how far I extend my personal power. Because it's very much down to royal power and how much they can extend it. Now the Levant is a is a is a different situation at the same time because it's rather different. So at the beginning of of the Egyptian New Kingdom, so we're talking about 1550 BCE, the Egyptians are pushing east so that they move in into the Levant. Um, they are essentially conquering territory as part of a campaign against the Canaanites, some of whom have been occupying Egypt before the, the New Kingdom. So they're expelling these people and then they're pushing them further east. And and as a result of doing that, they're, they're almost accidentally getting a Levantine empire for themselves. The difference there is that they can't go as far as they like because eventually they come across a competitor. And in the first instance, this is the, 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 the kingdom of Mitanni, which is based, roughly speaking, in sort of what we consider southeast Turkey, Iraq, bits of Syria. So they push back. So that in the New Kingdom, for the Egyptians, the Levant is territory which is contested with Mitanni in the first instance. So the Egyptians, at various pe- pe- periods, hold great chunks of, of what today we consider to be 
Israel-Palestine, um, Jordan, as far north as parts of Syria, but we've got these, these Mitanni pushing back in the opposite direction. Eventually, there's a peace treaty, so we do have settled frontiers. Later on, at the time that we're talking about, the reign of Ramesses II, Mitanni are replaced by the Hittites, who are the great power in, in central and, and eastern Turkey, and they replace Mitanni, and they too push into the Levant. So the, the, the short answer to your question is that the borders between different states at this time are, are rather flexible and are dependent on who's been military, militarily or diplomatically successful at that time. But by mid-reign mid, mid of Ramesses II, everything is actually pretty much settled. Uh, the borders with the Hittites have been more or less set in stone. Peace treaty between the Egyptians and the Hittites, so everybody knows who's on which side of the of that rough rough border. The Egyptians are well established in Nubia, so it's just in the west, towards Libya, which is opening up as a as a sort of new frontier where the borders are are, are much more fuzzy. So that's that's probably the the best way of putting it, I think. Okay, and I want to clarify then the so in the in the Levant by uh, this point in time in uh Ramesses the second's reign you don't consider uh Egypt to have any hegemony in the Levant region by that point it, it, it does it does have hegemony but that hegemony is contested so that the Mitanni and then the Hittites have their own I mean it's not there is a difference here in with Nubia with Nubia the Egyptians are moving in taking over they've got their own officials in charge it's very much that sort of imperial conquest. In the Levant, it's different. The Egyptians have hegemony, so do Mitanni replaced by, by the Hittites. But the control is not so um, obvious on the ground. Lots of these little city-states, cities in particular, are largely left to govern, govern themselves as long as they recognise the overall hegemony of the Egyptians themselves. So places... Like, like like Biblos, for instance, Ugarit, um, Hadsor. These, these, these are all important city-states in their own right, but they are, to a greater or lesser extent, clients of either Egypt or Mitanni, then later the Hittites. So it's very much as though this, this, this area is being carved up by the major imperial powers, but they, they allow uh, a good deal of um, self-governance to these these individual cities and, and little kingdoms within it. Okay, okay. Thank you for expanding on that, Stephen. So, what was the um, what was the purpose of, of the fortress? You mentioned uh, def, def, defense uh, is um, to, to use that 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 phrase. Um, simply put, is one one purpose. And but you also mentioned ships were arriving. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've mentioned from from Crete as an example. So can you can you maybe elaborate on uh, what's known or in, um, speculated about why this fortress was even built in the first place? Okay, well, well, to do that, we need to talk about, about the trade. Yeah, let's do it. So, so during the reign of Ramesses II, as I, as I say, the, the, the Egyptians are at peace with the Hittites. And in fact, the whole region of the Eastern Mediterranean is entirely at peace, a slightly uneasy peace in some cases. But essentially speaking, the, the main actors uh, don't have any major military conflicts with each other. And during this period, trade flourishes in a, in a big, big way. 
And the, the main way that we can see this happening is maritime trade. So it's, it's ships, fleets going around from port to port around the eastern Mediterranean. Probably, this is, this is open to some contention, probably mainly going in an anti-clockwise direction because that's how the winds and the tides work best during the sailing season. So, but, but loads of people are involved with this, so that Egypt is involved with it. Um, the Levantine uh, maritime uh, cities like Ugarit and Byblos I've, al I've already mentioned. Uh, further north, we've got the Hittites are involved. Further west, again, we've got My Mycenaean-controlled territory, including Greece itself, and the islands, including Crete. And they're all putting stuff into this. And so you can imagine these ships going round and round that they're collecting. In Egypt, they're collecting exotic things like maybe ebony, ivory, um, possibly gold, possibly grain. They're heading off. They're trading them in these Levantine ports for stuff that's coming much further east, as far as, as Mesopotamia, perhaps. Uh, they're heading along the southern coast of, uh, of Turkey. They're heading towards Greece, they're exchanging things for you know, olive oil, wine, resin, all this, all this we know from archaeological evidence from ceramic vessels which have been found all over the eastern Mediterranean, which have clearly come from origins in different parts of the Mediterranean. And, um, and also things like the, there's a very famous shipwreck, I'm, I'm sure you know, called the Uluburun ship, that went down off the southern coast of Turkey at about this time very early in the reign of Ramses II, perhaps a little bit earlier than that. And that had on it um, a whole whole range of, of, of materials. So it had um, amphorae full of, uh, of, of resin. Um, it had loads of copper. Copper is the main main uh, main component of the of the trade. And that looks as though it's it's coming from Cyprus. So and we know that the Egyptians themselves are very keen on getting their hands on on Cypriot copper. So there's a lot of things moving around. So, um, most of this journey is, um, as, a, as, a, as a late Bronze Age sailor, you don't want to go too far from land because navigation skills are relatively undeveloped. You don't want to lose sight of land. And for most of the time, that's really easy. They're just traveling along the coast, um, up, up the coast of the Levant, um, a little hop across to Cyprus, perhaps, then along the coast of, of uh, southern Turkey, and then island to island in Greece, till eventually you get to Crete. Um, now here's the big problem. How, how do you get from Crete to Egypt? And the answer is, it has to be a, a fairly long voyage um, where you mm. lose sight of land for at least several days. So you don't know exactly where you're going to mm. end up, except that you know that eventually, if you go south, you're going to hit Africa. Mm. And you're probably not going to hit the Nile Delta, you're going to hit the coast somewhere to the west of the Delta. Um, and, and we know this from, you know, I mentioned the Mercer Matur, this city, and there's a, there's a really interesting excavation carried carry out there uh, a number of years ago in the 80s um, by Don White from the University of Pennsylvania. And they excavated a site called Bates Island. And that looks as though it's a sort of little trading post because what they found on this island was evidence of, of imported pottery, which looks as though it's come from, from the Cypriot and, um, and, uh, and sort of a serial Levantine area. So it looks like these, these are traders who are making their way around and having a bit of a landfall. 
probably at this point, and the Mersa Matrue Island, Bates Island, is definitely earlier than Umarakam. And, and the interesting thing is there's no trace of Egyptian presence. So it looks as though the Egyptians aren't in this part of the world at all in the period prior to Ramesses II. And there's no reason why they should be. There's no reason why they're, they're interested, because as far as they're concerned, the ships will turn up from the west at some point, and no one's disturbing them. I think that what's happening with these new Libyan groups making their way eastwards towards Egypt and controlling this territory, they, they aren't making themselves players in this game of exchange. I think probably what they're doing, and I have to admit this is a bit of a guess, they're acting as though they're land-based pirates, so that these ships turn up, and rather than do, doing a bit of local exchange and the ships carry on um, along their merry way, they're actually stopping that trade by essentially robbing the ships, piracy. So I think part of the reason for the Umar Rakam fort is the Egyptians are saying, well, we weren't involved in this bit of the Mediterranean coast before because we've no real interest. But now, now we've got these people who are disrupting trade. We've got to do something about it. So I think that's one of the reasons why they, they set up these forts. I think, yes, they are there to protect Egypt from invasion. But I think in the first instance, they're there to protect the trade. And I think the, the problem with the trade happens even before the Egyptians realise that these new Libyans uh, are actually threatening Egypt itself and, can, and, and could potentially invade Egypt. So I think what they're doing in the reign of Ramesses II is setting up a system where these ships can arrive and they can be protected by an Egyptian military presence. And the reason I say this is because from the Umar Rakam fort, we've got very, very significant quantities of, of pottery from all over the Mediterranean. We've got um, mm. big stirrup jars that come from Crete or Greece. We've got big uh, amphora storage jars which come from somewhere on the Canaanite coast. We've got small vessels which come from Cyprus. You know, a real, real collection of, of stuff from all over the Mediterranean. And it seems to me that the best explanation of this is a little bit of, of trading which is going on with, associated with Egyptian forts before these ships. Um, after their journey from Crete, they turn up, they see a friendly Egyptian fort, they do a bit of trade, they take on water, they do any repairs they need, they take some food on, and then off, they, off their head eastwards towards Egypt itself. So I think, I think that's part of the reason that, that Zawiyat al-Rakam Another forts are there. They're there to to protect these sailors and the trade that's making its way around. So you know, it's, it's 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 making sure a link in a chain that goes all the way around the eastern Mediterranean is maintained. Because of course, the break in that chain will affect everybody on the route. So Egypt, if you like, is taking responsibility for for maintaining that link in the chain. Okay. So the name itself, where does the name come from, and what's known about the, the name Zoyat Um El Rakam? Okay, well, the Zem Zewiatumarakam has nothing to do with the, the ancient name for the fort. Um, the, 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 modern, the modern name is, is, is slightly puzzling. I've had several Egyptian colleagues, and, um, and they haven't got a very clear explanation. The, the term Zewiat, um, that means something like rest house. And the, the, it was, um, there are a whole series of different places in Egypt called Zewiat. And as I say, it seems to be connected with this idea as a, a place that you rest. Um, um al Rakam, um, um means mother, so you'd think it would be mother of something. Um, Rakam, the, the, the likely, that's the likely explanation, is that it's the word for vulture. 
So Zoetemo Rackham probably means something like rest house of the mother of vultures. Um, as I say, that's nothing to do with the, the ancient name of, uh, of the site. The, the ancient name of the site, which we know from uh, a number of hieroglyphic inscriptions which have been found there, is the, is the, is the, um, is the town of Ramesses, or the town of Usumat Re Setup and Re, which is another name for Ramesses. So he's, he's called, the, the original name of it was, was, was based on the name of the king himself. He, he has lots of previous form on this. Um, the, the biggest city he, he, he builds, this huge new capital city in the, in the eastern de delta, is called Per Ramesses, which also means House of Ramesses. So he's, he's very happy to give, give his name to, to lots of different places that he sets up during his reign. Okay, and sorry if I missed uh, this part in, the, uh, in, your, in your response, but where then um, is this name first cited? Um, and then what, 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 la what language um, is it in as well? The, the ancient, the ancient name of the site. No, the, uh, the, the Zoyet, um, el oh, so, Rackham. Oh, yeah. Okay. And that, that's, that's, Arab, that's, that's Arabic. And it's first cited, I think, in, in, in um, 19th century sources. I, I don't know any examples earlier than that. I mean, the, the, the thing is about the site is, is that it's, um, what's the best way of putting it? Um, un until very recently, it simply consisted of, of a few houses. That's it. I mean, the, the, the site itself was discovered purely by accident in, in 1948. Sort of in classic style, a, a farmer was uh, working in his fields. He was um, uh, planting fig trees. There's not, there's not a great deal that grows on this bit of the coast. Uh, there's a bit of barley in the winter and there's some fig trees and some olive trees. And um, he reported, he found this block of stone with these strange symbols on it. He took it to the local town, as it was then, of Mercer Metro. It was identified as being ancient Egyptian. And at that point, people, people got interested in it. But the, but the place itself was, was, was really tiny. Um, it, it, still, it still isn't huge, although having said that, um, it's, it's, it's very close to the coast. It's very close to uh, actually quite a lovely beach. And um, the, the, in the 1990s, a, well, from before that, the 80s, 90s up to the present day, there's been a lot of tourist development on the coast, including a big hotel complex. So that brings people in. But, but before that happened, it's a very tiny place indeed. And therefore, all the more surprising when, when these uh, these ancient Egyptian things started turning up far further west than they had been before. Okay, so at one point, it um, there there has been uh, uh, Egyptian hier hieroglyphic writing found with one uh, name. I think you mentioned had some something to do. Um, uh, it was eponymously named after uh, Ramesses, and then uh, and then there's Arabic writing. Uh, with a, a different name that's found later on. That's, that's right. Okay. Yes. What's, what seems to happen, as far as we can reconstruct the history of the site, is that, first of all, there's nothing there in the area. The archaeologists suggest there's nothing apart from this Bates Island site, the Mersa Matrua, which is 20 kilometers away. They, the Egyptians turn up in the Ramesside period, they build this huge fortress, they occupy it, then they abandon it. We've got evidence that of, of, of a short-term Libyan occupation within the fort itself. And by short-term, I, I mean a, a couple of years maximum. 
probably it's these people heading eastwards towards Egypt. They head off and they don't reoccupy it. The site is abandoned. It's, um, it's covered, covered with sand. The next thing that happens is in the Greco-Roman period, a town is founded on the coast. And we know this because there are Greco-Roman tombs there, there's, there's remains of a town. And one of the things that th those people are doing is using the stone, which has come from the, the Ramesside Fortress, which is just a few hundred meters to the south. And the reason we know this is that when we excavated the temple in, in, in the fortress, normally Egyptian temples have massive gateways, great big pylon gateways, huge things made out with stone. And this had nothing, nothing like that. They had, had this enormous hole. And later on, when we were looking at, because we didn't, we haven't excavated the, the Greco-Roman site, but we wandered over and had a look at it. The traces of buildings made out of these same huge blocks. So it looks as though in the Greco-Roman period, they're using this much older site as a quarry. The the site on the coast coast flourishes. It's probably the site that's to be identified in Greek and Roman authors as Apis. Uh, at some point, we're not quite sure, and again, it's something we doesn't really concern us directly. It's abandoned, certainly by the late Roman period. And again, that, that's completely forgotten and covered. And apart from a few goat and sheep herders, uh, local Bedou living along the coast, it's really not occupied at all. So there are these two periods of, of fairly intensive occupation in the late Bronze Age and then in the Greco-Roman period. Then, apart, then after that, nothing until the modern times. And members of a caliphate, it's believed, um, inhabited it as well? You'd mentioned? Um, well, certainly, you certainly. From it was, it, sorry, the, the yeah, you'd, which caliphate well, are we talking about? Well, that's, uh, that's, I'm going to ask. That, that's part of my question. Because you'd mentioned Arab. So so is that, so I'm presuming, um, is that a, a caliphate that would have occupied it? And if so, would that have been like the Rashidun, the Umayyad? Do you know um, by well, chance? It, um, it was certainly part of the Umayyad Caliphate. Later, it comes comes under part of the, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but um, like like most of Libya itself, the, the, this this is this is real backwater as part of the of the, of the Ottoman even even Abbasid Umayyad empires. So it's essentially it's not an area that 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 um, people are, are are that interested in. Um, I think I think one way of of characterizing this is, is comparing it with a little bit with what's happening a bit further west. Because if you go a couple of hundred kilometers further west into Libya itself, you've got this region, Cyrenica, the area close to the modern city of Benghazi, mm -hmm. which is capable of sustaining uh, agriculture on a large level and has always had a fairly high population. So, um, you know, in the, in the Greco Roman period and Possibly in the late Bronze Age, that's a real problem that we have. Uh, we don't have any really good late Bronze Age, indeed any Bronze Age archaeology in this region when we'd expect to. Um, and then later on into the modern period, of course, it's, it's, this is a you know, relatively heavily occupied part of the, of the, of the, of the, of the North African coast. So, so the places that we're talking about near Omar Rakam are places that essentially people travel through on the way to somewhere else. So people traveling from north egypt to to cyrenica will pass through it it's also the jumping off point for the siwa oasis which has also had 
relatively longish term occupations, certainly from uh, from the from the classical period and later, and that people people have visited, you know, on and off. Alexander the Great being the most famous example. So, as I say, it's, it's a place that people have passed through, but uh, is, isn't isn't intrinsically somewhere that would um, encourage significant occupation unless you've got a, a real reason for doing so. And I think as far as the Greco-Romans are concerned, uh, an Apis, it clearly has to be a port along the along the North African coast. Um, and as far as the, the late Bronze Age Egyptians are concerned, the only reason that they're involved there is because of these, these the issues which come out of these new Libyans appearing and the desire to protect Egypt, and more particularly to, to, to protect the trade routes um, so unless people have a particular reason for being there, they're not. It's not. It's not part. It's not part of the coast which encourages um, large-scale development or, or occupation. Yeah, I I understand, Stephen. So what I'm getting from that is it was occupied at at, at some point. One time that certainly was occupied was uh, during Ram- Ramesses' uh, reign. Uh, but then yeah. most of the time over history from that point in time. Uh, it's more intermittent uh, occupation. It's not like long-term inhabitants. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, yeah, you got it. With yeah. very, very big gaps in between. Yeah, understood. Okay. Um, so let's, uh, let's definitely, let's get, let's get to the, uh, what's, what's there now and understand a little bit more of this, uh, of what, 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 what you found and uh, et cetera. Um, so, uh, Actually, right before we, we we get there, but this can be part of. I'm going to ask two questions. You can you can kind of uh, put this in your answer. Um, so the what's at its height. Um, so the first question is at the at its height during uh, when the Egyptians uh, built it and occupied it. Um, what, what do scholars believe its occupation uh, to be in terms of population? Uh, you might have to, of course, um, speculate. But I'm curious what you know if you have a sense of how many people actually live there. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. if someone, if and then, can you describe um, if if someone goes there today, what do they what do they actually see? And you can bring in, you know, the size of it, the dimensions, etc. Et, et that'd be that'd be great if you're able to do that. Okay, well, I'll, I'll backtrack a bit slightly back to 1948. Um, I said that a farmer digging a field found this block, and that was the first trace of the site. Essentially, before then, there was nothing visible on the ground; it had been completely covered up. Okay. Mm. Um, after its discovery in the, in the 1950s, an Egyptian archaeologist called Labib Habashi worked briefly at the site. And it was he who um, made the link that this, that this was an, an Egyptian fort of some kind. But he only excavated a small part of it. And his theory was that this was like um, a sort of tripwire fort, which was right on the, you know, to, to look out, a watchtower, if you like, to look out for Libyans, and uh, the population would be really quite small, you know, maybe a couple of dozen people. But after we started work, the University of Liverpool started work in 1994, um, and we started excavating there, it just got bigger and bigger. And um, now it's, it's, it's a huge area. It's, the fort itself is an almost exact square. It's 200 yards uh, on, on, on either side. Um, and it contains, well, so far we've excavated, well, we re-excavated the temple that Habashi found. We found a series of chapels uh, that the soldiers used for, 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 for worship. We found a series of storage rooms, which have huge storage rooms, which have m- m- much of the pottery that I've I, I described within it. 
and a variety of other buildings, including an area that we've been excavating where they produced um, bread, beer, everything that people in the, in the site would need. So the site is, is only partially excavated. We've excavated, I guess, less than a third of it. Um, some of the more recent work we've done suggests that there was occupation outside the walls of the fort itself. Because what you've got to imagine is that you've got this huge square fortress. It's got one entrance, one massive gateway on it, and the walls are huge. So five, five meters across, they're probably 10 meters high. So be a really dominating thing on the, in, in the landscape. Around it, we've probably got um, areas where, where the Egyptians are trading with, with local Libyan groups. Because one of the things that we've excavated in the fort are lots of um, lots of goat bones, and it looks as though, and, and they all tend to be quite young animals. So it looks as though that these are uh, are animals which have been brought for meat. So um, if you went to the site today, what you'd see essentially is what we've excavated, which would be the the traces of the temple, the major walls themselves, the major gate, other bits of it. But quite a lot of it is is down to pretty much foundation level. And the reason for that is that um, the site was made primarily out of two materials. One is mud brick. And the thing you need to know about this bit of the coast is that it, in the winter it rains, and it rains a lot. So whereas in, say, southern Egypt, mud brick buildings will just last forever because mm. it's so dry, here they get degraded very quickly. So that's why we find the foundations of these huge walls, but they weren't visible until you start excavating them. The other material is, is, is local limestone, which isn't great quality. And again, over time, rainfall doesn't do it any favours. So that's, that's why everything is in such um, degraded condition. Although, as I say, foundations of the thing um, survived really well because you know, the, site, the site degrades down, it gets covered up, uh, it gets abandoned. Um, you can't see, as I say, you can't see anything about of it on the surface. So that's what you'd see if you visited the site today, which is very different to what you'd see if you were if you were there in about 1250 BCE. Your other question was about the population. Mm -hmm. Now this is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, we've tried to come at this from a number of different directions. One is assessing what the population is likely to be given the amount of space within the within the fort, um, and the closer we've come to is is many hundreds of people. Okay. But there's another way that we've got to this, is that I said that we had um, we discovered some chapels where local uh, where, where the soldiers in the fort, Egyptian soldiers, uh, worshipped local gods because they don't access have access to the main temple, so they have these little chapels. And the way that we know this is they set up these steely these stone slabs, which have an image of the, the gods that they're worshipping including the king himself, and a little bit of a text and an image of themselves. Now, one of these is really interesting. It's quite a big one. It's excavated by Habashi, and it has two soldiers on it. And these aren't just any old soldiers. They're uh, standard bearers. And in, in the Egyptian army at this time, a standard bearer isn't just some guy who carries a pole with an emblem on it. He's the officer in charge of a regiment. Now, we've got two of these guys on this stealer. They're both individually named, and they're both in charge of different regiments. So the assumption is that they're both at the site at the same time. 
and a sharing stealer. Now, we know at that time an Egyptian regiment has about 250 men in it. So, on the basis of this stealer, it's two regiments of 250 men. So, already, just on the basis of this, we've got 500 men if, 200, if two regiments are there at a time. So, that gives us some sense, I think, of a, of a base figure. I'm not saying that two regiments is the number that was there all the time. And of course, there may be other regiments there at the time. It may have been an unusually high number. But I think seeing 500 soldiers and, 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 and um, a food provisioning area, which is capable of turning out hundreds and hundreds of loaves of bread and many, many jars of beer every day. And we've got wells. We haven't yet excavated the bar barracks. I think I know where it is, but we haven't mm -hmm. dug it out yet. I think we can say, and I apologize for being so vague about this, many hundreds, probably no more than, more than a thousand. But the other question, and one that we're really interested in at the moment, um, is the nature of the people within there. Uh, we know that there are Egyptian soldiers. We know the name of their commander, actually. We've got a statue of this guy. It's a man called Nebray, so we know a little bit about him. And on one block from the site, he's there with his wife. And that triggers the question, is this a fortress time that's just for soldiers? Do they bring their families from Egypt? Do they develop families with local Libyans so that you've got... And, and the way I like to think about this is a bit like um, Roman forts in, in northern England, where they start off with forts with Roman soldiers within them, and then they turn into towns which have a much more mixed Romano-British character as you know, sort of mixed families develop and they have this mixed character to them. Omar Rakam doesn't survive long enough for those sort of things to develop. But I do wonder whether, clearly there are some relationships going on between the soldiers and the local population, even if it's only trading things. But it may well go beyond that, and it may well go beyond trading goods to development of relationships and a much more mixed community, perhaps outside the main fortress itself. But that's that at this stage is a bit of a guess, but it's certainly a, a line for a, a line of development for future research in the area, looking at who's living there and who they are. So he mentioned uh, you mentioned beer in in the uh, in in your response, uh, bread, right? Different uh, rations that um, would have uh, allowed uh, people to have sustenance and continue. Um, is anything known about were they importing the the bread in? Were they importing the beer, the, the you know the ales in? Were they were they actually producing it on site? And if they if they were producing this stuff on site, is anything known about the equipment that would have been there to help actually you know turn grain into bread, uh, you know bar barley, uh, etc. Right, hops potentially yeah. right into into beer. Can you speak Can you speak more about that? Yes, yes. Now for that we've got really good evidence uh, um, in in. A huge area in the, the southeast part of the site. We've got this region which seems to be essentially kitchens, and that's where the bread and beer is being produced. And by what there is there, you can trace it back. So what we have there are ovens where they're baking the bread, and we have um, um, mixing troughs where they're making the dough, and we have querns where they're grinding the corn. And we have storerooms where they're storing 
the grain. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and we also have uh, lots and lots of beer jars in this area. Mm -hmm. There's a very particular type of jar that the Egyptians use for storing beer. And in the same area, there's a there's a well. Um, if you if you if you, it's it's based on limestone. The area is limestone, but if you sink a, a shaft down about about four or five meters, you hit groundwater, really good quality groundwater. It's, it's drinkable even today, like from the test. Um, so the water is there, the grain is there, so, and 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 all the equipment's there to make it. So they're clearly making it at the site itself. The outstanding question is, where does the grain come from? And at first we thought that they're obviously importing this from Egypt itself. And part of the reason we, we, we thought that at first was because the inscriptions from the site tend to mirror the sort of things that we see in Egypt itself about, about Libyans and foreigners in general. They're terrible people that, uh, you know, we should attack them and beat them up and trample them all the time. They're really horrible. And looking at the fort itself with its massive walls, you think, yeah, yeah, here's, here's an Egyptian soldiers who are inside this fort and outside of these terrifically hostile local Libyans. But they were, the picture's really changed on that. And the grain is, is one exa example of that, because we realised pretty soon, once the site, site started get, getting bigger, and we're talking about hundreds of people living there, they simply couldn't ship in enough grain to feed these people, particularly as any ships coming from Egypt would be going, if you like, in the wrong direction as far as the, the, the winds and tides are concerned. So it's very clear, they're growing it locally. Um, mm. And what that means is that it must have some sort of fairly, as, as I say, you know, mutually beneficial relationship with local Libyan groups. Because let, let, me, let me put it this way, um, they must have had a, a positive relationship because if you're a local Libyan and Egyptians come along and they build this big fortress, you can do two things. One is you can be very resentful about it or want to do something about it or you can come to some sort of seeing it to your economic benefit because if you were a libyan and living locally and you wanted egyptians to go away what you wouldn't do is get a collection of friends and a ladder and try and attack the thing what you would do is you wait for the grain to come close to harvest time and you'd set fire to it that would be a real problem for the egyptians so, as I said, this is, this is one, one way of us thinking that um, there's this positive relationship going on. And certainly, as I said at the beginning today, they grow winter barley in the region. So there's no reason to suggest they're not doing the same thing on, on that bit of, the, bit of the coast. But there's something else. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things, the other things that we found in this, this production area are things for, for spinning and for weaving. And the particular apparatus that we found, um, I won't go into detail because it's boring, is, is that it's for, it's for spinning and weaving flax to make linen. So what's important about, making, making, about using flax to make linen is you need to treat it while it's still wet. Mm -hmm. When it's pulled out of the ground, you need to, to, to break up the fibres and start spinning it while it's down. So if you're, make, if you're making linen, you do it close to the source of where the flax is being grown. So what you don't, what, what's not happening is that they're importing flax. Well, what, they, they could import linen from Egypt, of course, they could just send the cloth. Mm -hmm. But if they're making it there, they're not going to send the flax over because it would be, you know, 
why would you send flax when you can send finished linen? And it would be too dry by the time you got there. So they're growing flax nearby, they're growing flax near the side. And flax needs great basins of water. So there's, what, what we're coming to is a realisation that round the fort, there's a lot of agriculture going on. And agriculture which is supporting the, the, the people who are living there f- for food, but also they're growing flax so that they can turn that into, into cloth. So that's why I like to, that's why I refer to Zerotomo Rakam as a fortress town rather than just as a fortress, because clearly it's, it's a military installation in the first instance, but it's, it's becoming over time much more like a town, a self-sufficient town that's growing things that it needs, and if they can't grow them or produce them themselves, they're trading them with, 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 local, with local Libyans. So what I imagine is going on is that these local Libyans are turning up with, 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 with goats, uh, because you know, where do you get fresh meat from, where do you get animal protein? And, and in exchange, they're going away with perhaps linen, perhaps beer, which they don't seem to produce themselves. So I think there's a, you know, there's a real exchange going on there. And um, in, as I say, increasingly, as we've been excavating the site and finding more of these things, it's changed from a small lookout fort to something which is just military with a load of frightened Egyptians inside peering out and looking at, for hostile Libyans and uh, something which has become much more of a, of a town which brings Libyans in. But again, the thing I need to emphasise here, the Libyans I'm talking about around the fortress are local Libyans, are the same people that the Egyptians have known about for centuries and centuries. The ones who are the problem, as far as the Egyptians are concerned, are the guys from much further west, the Meshwesh and the Libu, who are moving into this area and trying to muscle in onto on the territory of these these other Libyan groups. So, so I, th- I think it's important to distinguish between what particular Libyan group we're talking about when we're talking about the Egyptian relationship with those people. Okay. Uh, were any independent skeletons found uh, or uh, grave sites? Uh, this is this is a great mystery. We have mm. found no evidence of anybody being buried at the site. Um, there has been, I mean, we, we thought about this in, in general theoretical terms. If, you're, if an Egyptian soldier dies, do you bury him inside the fort? Or do you bury him outside the fort, dug up by some Libyans or jackals or whatever? Um, whatever conclusion we come to doesn't really help because we've come across no burials within the fort itself, which isn't surprising. It's not what we'd expect. But we've also done a number of surveys on the desert edge to the south of the site, and there's no 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 um, mm. indication that there are any burials there at all. And this is a puzzle because it seems to us that if this site is has got 500 plus li- people living there, it's occupied for the minimum 20, 30 years. Clearly, people are going to die. So what what do you do with these people who, who die? Um, and one possibility is that these people are being sent home to Egypt. You wrap them up, you mummify them as best you can, and you send them back for burial in Egypt. Because one of the things that e- Egyptians are very, very keen on is uh, is burial, a proper burial in Egypt itself. And um, I guess, and this is speculation here, I guess part of the deal is that this fortress is furthest away from Egypt, both physically and I think probably conceptually as well, than 
anywhere, certainly than anywhere in the Levant or indeed in Nubia. And I think probably the, the, the deal is that I can't imagine any Egyptian soldiers being wanting to send, be sent there, but I think if they were given the guarantee that if they died, their body would be brought home for proper burial in Egypt, then that would, to some extent, some people's mind at rest. So, you know, that's 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 my my current explanation for why we haven't found any bodies. But but the the, the but a more obvious answer might be we just haven't found them yet. But um, I, I I can't see that as as an Egyptian soldier, I would I would want to be buried out there. Um, you mentioned Egyptian hieroglyph uh, hieroglyphs earlier. Um, how much, if you could describe in the best way, um, using uh, integers like qu- quantitative numbers, how much how much writings have been found from this from this period in the Bronze Age uh, at at the site? At, at the site, um, most of the hieroglyphic texts that we found come from inscriptions on limestone that's been used in buildings. Um, some of this has been badly eroded so that the temple for instance has hardly any hieroglyphs on it because it's so badly abraded but the storerooms that we found um each of them had a doorway which had a fairly long text referring to 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 ramesses ii other buildings on the site again typically it's doorways have got inscriptions on them um we've got individual objects like these stone stele so in terms of inscribed objects themselves, I would say oh, um, low hundreds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what was, uh, and, and we're working our way to closing questions um, to, to ensure that the episode uh, is under an hour for everybody, but I would, I could spend another hour speaking with you about this. This is so interesting. Um, could you summarize, if you could, the what what the writings were about like what the purpose of the writings were is there a way to kind of you know what i mean is there a way to kind of summarize what the writings uh were 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 the purpose of them okay of course um i'll 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 tell you what we don't have which will be useful we don't have any um administrative records we don't have any letters we don't have any informal inscriptions and that's a pity because i think that would tell us a lot more about the everyday lives of people at the site. What we overwhelmingly have are inscriptions on monuments, whether it's stone doorways attached to official buildings, whether it's inscriptions attached to um, chapels and temples. And and in the case, the single most informative hieroglyphic text is on the back of the the statue that we discovered of Nebre himself, which says something about the building the site and tells us something about himself but overwhelmingly this is these are official texts it's it's propaganda it's putting the name of Ramesses II on as many things as he possibly can and um, that's uh, in terms of the the inscriptions at Atomar Rakam the name Ramesses is the thing most often found the name Nebre the commander is the second thing most often found but beyond that, we don't have very much more than, than those official records. And what we'd love to find is, uh, is a collection of, of administrative documents which tell us about the day-to-day running of the site. But that, as, as with so much else, is, uh, is on our wish list of things still to be discovered there. Has any uh, deities been cited in any of the writings on the, yes. at the site? Yes. 
Um, in particular, I mean, I mean, there are a range of gods. The god Ammon, who is the main god of the Egyptian Empire, is mentioned uh, a lot, and that's what you'd expect. All over the Egyptian Empire, you get that. But there's a particular emphasis on the god Ptah and his wife, the goddess Sekhmet. Um, and that's interesting because they are gods connected to Memphis, the main, apart from Paramses, the main northern uh, administrative centre in Egypt in the New Kingdom. And I suspect that's because most of the soldiers and certainly most of the officers, almost certainly Nebre himself, the commander of the, of the site, come from Memphis. So they're bringing with them the, the, the hometown gods, if you like, and worshipping them in this in this distant location. So let's say we get a little bit of a mixture of gods, but the, the presence of Tarn Sekhmet and the link to, to Memphis, is, I, I think, takes us a little bit further to understanding both practice of worship in, uh, at this time and also links the people in the site to their hometown because of the very regional specificity of, of many Egyptian gods. This has been a, a great uh, conversation, Stephen. You're, you're a delight uh, to chat with. <laughs> it's, it's always a pleasure to talk about the site. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's terrific. Um, if anyone, uh, and I'd, I'd asked you if you wanted me to plug any books for you at the start, and you said you said no. You've written, you've written, uh, uh, you've written um, uh, in the past. You have a, a at least at least one, uh, but it's a very scholarly book, right? You you had mentioned. Yes, ma mainly, and a, a yeah. few articles as well. Um, if people want, want want to get hold of them, quite a few of them are, are downloadable on my Academia website. Yeah, and so this uh, is Academia pages. Yeah, and so this is what I kind of want to cl uh, close with, because if anyone's listening and they want to learn more about this um, uh, fortress, um, how what would you suggest they do as as next steps? Um, well, as I say, if they want to have a look at the popular uh, my publications on on academia, then they'll find a lot, lot, lot of information there. If um, if, uh, if if there are people who want to know more specific things about the site, that's because it raises their interest or connect to their own research um you can you can always email me um simple email address snape at liveliv.ac.uk okay great and i will uh drop links to um both I'll, I'll drop links to your academia and your email in the in the show notes on the ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode Stephen and everybody listening as always wishing a marvelous journey bye for now Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.